And good morning, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here this morning. Alex is uh, out of town, so uh, I'm here. Uh, and we're going to welcome you in and say, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. The second hour, typically a bit of a deeper dive into a topic. And today is Audio Wednesday. So our second hour will be, if you so choose, a focus on audio questions. I say, if you so choose, because the show is always driven by the questions that are submitted on Makana to the show. And we spend the whole day diving into those uh, questions to answer them. And we're going to do that right now. Uh, Ken, what do we got today? Good day, Bill. Well, the first question comes from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. And Bo says, does anyone have favorite sources, layouts, or tips for creating good one-page cheat sheets, primarily thinking about programming languages like Python, JavaScript, TypeScript, Markdown, and such, but possibly even for Excel, Google Docs, and Zoom? Boy, uh, there, that's a lot of ground to cover there in terms of text-based processing. A lot of people use just the standard word processors. I find uh, I, when I'm trying to figure out cheat sheets, tend to use a program called Omni Outliner just because it's an outlining program to organize thoughts. And its strength is that you can do uh, nested subgroups of topics. And I often find when I'm trying to figure out um, little bits of information and reorder them easily. That works for me. Not saying that's the best one. That's just what I've done over the course of time. John Preto has some thoughts and so does Jeff Cohen. Let's start with Jeff and then go to John. Jeff. So I use VS Code for any coding and with all the plugins that VS Code has now in their ecosystem, you can pop up all the cheat sheets and libraries and help information you need right out of VS Code. It's fantastic. There you go. Uh, Jeff Cohen. And one tip I love and that I use for easy retrieval for things that you use a lot, um, one of the many things I'm doing, at least if you're on a Mac, with uh, shortcuts, and of course you can automate the same on uh, Windows or Unix, but um, I just create a keyboard shortcut to whatever that document is. So whatever you're using for the document, I have some for things that are in Google Docs, some on the Mac for things that are in Apple Notes, and then that keyboard shortcut just quickly opens that doc and there it is and then escape or whatever to get out of it. So that's super handy. Yeah, I, I forgot that you were talking about specifically programming, and that is such a structured language that I would imagine that a program structured specifically for doing that would be much better than a general purpose tool. So hopefully that gave you some ideas. Let's dip into the next question. Andy Kokoderfer from Vieira, Florida asks, what steps have you taken with a vendor to promote feature development? And we're going to start with Mitchell. I have to ask, did he mean future development or is it... Feature, feature development as in feature film. That's a good question. Feature. Um, wow. Well, no, I don't know. That's if feature is the word there, but that doesn't mean future development wouldn't be uh, closer. And since we don't have the benefit of Andy being here today, uh, we'll give it a shot. Uh, whichever wouldn't you like to take a shot at, Mitchell? You want to continue I, I, or leave I'd it to me? I'd say Chris one dollar bill would fit fee, uh, fix any of those problems. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Nigel, what do you think? So I was going to take the feature as my uh, option here. So how do you get a vendor to add a feature to their product that you want? And I think that there are a number of things, and I probably am more used to this from the vendor side than I am the technician side. Um, number one, be the person that they go to for information, advice, alphas, betas, tests. Be a useful resource to them is the first thing. Uh, not enough people uh, view this as a two-way relationship. They view it very much as from vendor to, 
to user. And when you can give back the other way, it's worth a lot. The second thing is you've got to show a business case. that They're going to do a feature if there's a business case for it, if there's a financial opportunity. So show them how it will get used and where else in the market it might be useful. That's all very good advice. I have a friend who actually works in a large software company, and his job is to uh, overview the requests that come in from the users. It's a very popular piece of software. So there are legions of suggestions and things like that. Uh, in terms of, and I'm going to start with a little just bit of what he's told me about bug reports. You know, they do track uh, metrics on them. So you're, you're, a singular request from one person about one thing that's bothering them tends to get less weight than a, a whole a lot of people are talking about this right now. And it seems to be a big issue among the developer, our user community. So let's give that more priority. It's all about priorities. And I think that from what I've heard talking to him, the more clearly you can articulate why you think a feature is important, not just to you in your specific use case, but why it might be generically good for the whole universe of people using the software. The better you can explain that, the more likely you are to have your feature request taking, uh, taken seriously. Um, there's just so much complexity in these software programs now that if it's a, I like to do it this way when I have these 14 things happening at the same time. Well, not many people will have those 14 things happening. And so your feature may not get us as, as plugged. Those are my thoughts on it from talking to somebody who does this as a living day in and day out. But that's, uh, that's enough of that. Let's go on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas says, is there any hope for seeing a resupply and return to normal pricing for the Raspberry Pi? What's the best substitute for the Raspberry? Start with Jeff Cohen here. Jeff? Yeah, it'll return to normal as in what it is now and everything else on the planet is now normal. You know, I don't remember uh, a history of a lot of companies once they raise prices, um, you know, just going ahead and reducing all their prices magically. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of companies had some legitimate reasons to have to raise prices to cover true costs of supply and and logistics and things like that and of course every other company on the planet just took this as a great opportunity to also raise their prices while no one would pay attention so no prices for anything uh, are not going to go back to the way they were with yeah, it's always seemed to me that course. price increases is a locking ratchet. Once it clicks over to the next step, it very seldom goes back down again. Next, uh, oh, Mitchell. Yes. I just want to say, Jeff, uh, is spot on. I think uh, people that tend to change the prices, um, I used to pay 35 cents for a gallon of gas, and uh, I don't think those days are going to return anytime soon. Last I checked, um, a Raspberry Pi 4 was about $350 loaded. I think my first gallon of gas was 29 cents. Uh, those days are gone. Nigel? I was only going to talk about generically about the supply chain, and the supply chain is starting to loosen up a bit. So it's, um, it's coming out in chunks. Things are getting better. Ironically, I suspect in six months we will be in an oversupply place because people have got too much stuff, and you may start seeing sales, particularly if the economy starts to struggle, but it's starting to get better. There you go. So there's some some various opinions. I can tell already that we had a uh, modest group of questions to begin with. And so it'd be an excellent day if you have questions. If not, we will get to the end of the list of today and we will switch on 
to the second hour for audio questions specifically. You can enter either kind. If you want to ask things about our second hour audio discussion, great. If you want to do general questions, that is great too. When we run out of questions, though, we will say thank you and uh, take off for today. So uh, up to you how long we go. Let's move on to the next question. Speaking of Bo Cordell from South Carolina, he asks, a week or so ago, I asked the panel about the usefulness of a small, cheap touchscreen monitor. At least one person here bought and tested one. What's the verdict? I don't know if that person is here. Does anybody remember the discussion and uh, who it might have been that said something about a cheap? I, I, something tells me it might have been Courtney. It was Courtney looking at something like that. I, I'm just trying to remember back. Uh, Mitch, you had some thoughts? Yeah, we was talking about a, a seven-inch uh, touchscreen, and I think we uh, suggested an Atomos or Blackmagic design. Yeah, I think I remember that part of it. Jesse, you had some other thoughts? Uh, I use the touchscreen that Pi recommends when you buy your Raspberry Pi, and I like it for that. I can't speak on using Atomos with a computer or something like that, but this works for Raspberry Pi. Was that a generic off of Amazon or someplace similar, or was it a branded name that we could give out to Bo to help him find something. Oh, I could read off the numbers written on it, but it, it's the <laughs> one that uh, Raspberry Pi suggests. I don't know if it's directly on their website, but it's kind of like the built for their Pi monitor. Nice. That That's an interesting device. What are you using that for? That looks really cool. Absolutely nothing right now. I wanted to get into <laughs> pies uh, and I just, so, hey, for the person who's looking for a cheap pie, if you're in desperate need, uh, just give me a call. It's a very impressive looking build there with all of those uh, components sticking out of the back of it. I wouldn't fly with that. But other than that, it looks really cool. Uh, nicely done. Let's uh, move on to the next question. I like pie. Oh, uh, Douglas Carmichael says in this Seattle Kraken Stadium introduction, and it gives us a web link here, they're projecting video onto the ice surface. How would they be doing that? And what tools would you use to precisely map the video to a specific shape? So the projection industry, and they're doing this more and more. We're seeing it on the sides of buildings. We're seeing it uh, video properly mapped to irregular objects, which I find fascinating. It means that they have to make the actual graphic uh, kind of three-dimensional such that when it's projected on a plane you know, many, many yards in front of another plane, everything fits and one isn't much smaller than the other. Uh, this is a deal. The first time I actually saw this, and one of the things that really surprised me about it was in an NBA All-Star game that I got lucky enough to uh, uh, grab a ticket to. And as I walked down the concourse, I noticed these very vague patterns, um, little gobos that were swirling along the floor as I walked. And I didn't pay much attention to them, but when I got back and watched a replay, they took a camera through there, and those things that I could barely see really popped on camera. So one of the things that surprised me is that how things look on video in terms of the contrast and their, their readability and what happens in the real world are very different. So if you ever go to a hockey game and you see some very vague looking things projected on that by a projector or something out, maybe, you know, during pre-show, uh, that doesn't mean they're, they're that vague to the audience. I was really surprised about that. Mitch, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I think that's an extension of exactly what you're talking about. Uh, mapping projection is a big business now. If you walk down Times Square now, they're doing that a lot on sides of buildings uh, they even have it to the point where uh, they have it, if there's an irregularly shaped building, that the, the only part of the screen is mapped to that particular part of the building. And then something might step out like a dragon or something like that and scare the heck out of people. 
Yeah, the, the, that industry is going through a tremendous amount of R&D and uh you know, it is another form of advertising, marketing to be able to do that. Uh, it, it always, you know, if for a while it was building wraps where they literally had to go up, like putting up a billboard and stretch out and append a fabric to a building. Now, unless the building is huge and it would cost way too much to project something bright enough to make it readable, uh, they can do a lot of that stuff with buildings. And and boy, when a museum or something like that does projection, it can really look beautiful. Uh, the designers are paying good attention to this. And I think it's a growing field. I think if I was a young artist and I, I knew how to do anything close to that, I would explore that because it's a fascinating thing to be able to project onto an irregular canvas like that. All right. Uh, I'm just mumbling here. Let's go on to the next question. Bo Curdle, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Any home labbers here? Working on my home network's Docker stack, currently running Pi-hole, Unify Controller, WireGuard VPN, and a few other miscellaneous apps. Any other favorites among the panel? Bo, I'm not sure you have anybody here who uh, plays in that playground. Uh, nobody has clicked in on that. So this may be one of those great questions where save it, don't, uh, don't lose it, but try a different panel group another day. Um, oh, Serge has a thought. He just popped in. Serge? Well, it's just the part that uh, mentioned Docker that uh, referred me to answer the question because I'm not big on using Docker in my home lab. My home lab is all about VMs and all about uh, server and not really server, but Hyper-V that I can use as a server with Hyper-V and set up VMs of Linux or Windows, anything I need. Docker for me, it's more when you want something in the cloud and save on the cost because Docker will cost less than a full VM uh, infrastructure. So maybe you just push me to somewhere and I will need to try to have Docker on my home lab and something I could uh, answer more properly in the next time. So uh, do, do I understand that Docker is kind of a software stack that lives in the cloud that you can have access to that that hosts uh, apps and things like that. Is that what Docker actually is? Because I'm completely unfamiliar with it. Yeah. In my understanding, it's a way to have a smaller OS part and run a service. It's it's that the, the one of the technology to try to have service separated from the, the, the full server OS. Because the way you try to reach that security is to have Every service has its own Docker. That way it's more manageable and more properly safe. So a virtual partitioning kind of a scheme. Yeah. Interesting. Well, now I know something I didn't know before, which is part of what we try to do here on Office Hours every day. And part of the reason I think people tune in here. I know I, one of the reasons I find the shows that I know nothing about in advance, some of the most interesting that I see here. Uh, let's move on to the next question. John Johnson from New York asks, I have a client who does two live streams to YouTube every year. They record and edit it, and we simply play out the edited clip live to YouTube from my system. Instead of this, is there a way to schedule a play out on YouTube or some other software? Thanks. Oh, and I'm really sorry that Alex isn't here today because this seems like the kind of thing that he's very familiar with, uh, but operating essentially YouTube as a distribution system. I don't do that myself, so I don't know and I don't see it. Oh, Jeff Cohen. Jeff Cohen has some thoughts. Jeff, go, go ahead. Yeah, this. I mean, this doesn't sound like it's exactly what he's looking for, but uh, in case you're not aware, I mean, there is the YouTube premieres that you can schedule. So you can 
upload it, upload the video to YouTube and schedule a premiere. It's a great way to build some interest and build some hype. And it is a live viewing event because whatever time you schedule that premiere for, that's when it becomes available and then it's live and you have some of the live functionality. Um, so that's the closest I can think of at least. Uh, Jesse. If you're doing that, just be sure to be aware of YouTube's publishing schedule. So I think you have to upload within like 24 hours or 12 hours of broadcast. So you can't upload it an hour before broadcast if you're doing it as a premiere that you're going to be advertising as kind of like a live streamy premiere. That sounds like very good advice on both cases. So thank you both. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Paul Walhos from Austin, Texas says, Avatar, the way of water, arrives in cinemas December 16th. And the trailer was just released. He gives us a web link and asks, will it bring back 3D? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, let's take a shot at it. We're going to start with Javier. Well, I, I think the movie industry has been uh, looking for different ways to get people back into the theaters. And I maybe good 3D can do it. Uh, well, that in mind, uh, Avatar is very different for any other or almost every other 3D movie. The first one was very different because they use like a special rig with special cameras. And it uh, tend to be that most studios just like the 3D as an uh, afterthought. So I'm not sure if he's going to bring good back, uh, good 3D back. That's what I'm hoping, that he, the technology that uh, Cameron's making advances so much that uh, other filmmakers can do it and we don't get like more like this fake 3D. He's been working on it for a long time, and I know they've spent yeah. a lot of money on, on mounting this production. Jesse, your thoughts? Uh, it seems like we see a pop and a fizzle of 3D every 15 or so years in the theater. I believe that if anyone could uh, precipitate a pop it's james cameron with avatar but i also believe that this time the fizzle will probably be quicker because so many eyeballs have migrated to streaming and 3d just isn't there in the home theater so th those are my thoughts okay nigel so i heard the other day that they believe the box office is going to have to be close to two billion dollars if this is going to return any money so that is a very long stretch I have to say, this is not the first trailer. It's probably the third I've seen. And I find them completely uninteresting. I think he may have left far too long between uh, this and the previous one. Uh, I have to tell you, it doesn't appeal to me. We we go to the cinema regularly. We're still people who go to the, the multi-screen and the big, the big house. This is not on our list. Interesting. Mitchell. 3D uh, lends itself to CGI because you have a lot more control over it. Um, I saw it first at the Muppets show at uh, Disney World, and it was very impressive. But uh, he might as well leverage all that he has, and since the movie is mostly CGI, uh, they can do well with it. And I think they should bring it out quickly because Avatar The Way of Water might be subject to water restrictions in California. <laughs> you can't put that much on screen. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, metric ton limit. Uh, Surge. Uh, 3D in the movie theater, it's not a reason for me to go back to the movie theater. And actually, it's a reason not to go because with my glasses, to have 3D glasses in front of them, it's a mess. It's not a good situation. 3D on uh, some VR glasses, 
might be something I'm be interested of testing. So if the, that's the way the industry wants to go, I am fine. But movie theater, it's no go for me. Well, now that's an interesting note you just made, 3D glasses, because we've been hearing forever that Apple is working on some sort of immersive 3D uh, wearable system. So I wonder if... Uh, and I have, uh, have a meta, meta VR glasses and the 3D effect on them is it's nice enough uh, and I don't have the same problem of wearing glasses in front of my glasses. Ah, okay. So uh, interesting. I was just wondering if there might be some convergence there of, uh, you know, if they got a piece of fabulous 3D content. And if, and nobody knows, Apple comes out with another product, that might be a convergence. Who knows? Nigel, your thoughts? Uh, just small name drop. Uh, I was having dinner at Jeffrey Katzenberg's house a few years ago. Uh, me and 120 other people. So it was... <laughs> quite as special as it sounds. And uh, he had some of, uh, you know, SKG's uh, cartoons playing. I can't remember which one it was. On a TV in his living room. And as you walk past, it was in 3D without glasses. And it was one of those things where you walk past and then you sort of back up and look at it again. So I don't know what the technology was. My guess is it wasn't a generally available technology. It was probably a uh, one-off thing that they use. But that that was a very interesting experience to be able to watch a 3D cartoon without any glasses at all. Yeah, you know, you think about virtual reality, and we all know that there's a lot of shops with a lot of backing working on that. And you can see that dimensionality is a piece that fits into virtual reality, fits into stereoscopic and beyond. And this idea of head-worn displays of some form there seems to be a lot of things trying to converge on that. And you just wonder whether or not uh, some of these, the resurgence of 3D and films and stuff like that, maybe people are trying to position themselves and or their content for a future where they see that coming. I don't know. I know nothing beyond that. It'll be interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm I'm, I'm mentally still distant from it, but, but it may turn out to be a wow thing that I'll really be interested in later. Let's move on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael is here to tell us many large venues are using IPTV platforms to distribute video within a facility. And he asks, do you think we'll ever see North American telecoms move away from legacy coax cabling to deliver pure IP-based content delivery to the residential market? Serge, let's start with you. I I don't know enough about the U.S. market, but I can tell you here in my local area, the traditional cable supplier are all moved to IPTV. Yeah. Uh, Mitchell. Kind of like two questions, but I'll answer the first one first. Yes, everything's going IP. Audio, video, you name it. If it can be turned into a packet, it's going over an IP network. Um, and the other part is that Verizon just announced that they're tearing out all of their wire-based uh, phone systems. or switching all the fiber. Interesting. Jeff Cohen. Yeah. And the other thing when we're talking about, will they ever, I mean, eventually it will all be wireless, you know, when the, when the technology and scale and capacity gets to a reasonable price point, it will be far easier for these companies to maintain, you know, wire tower, wireless towers than it is to maintain wires running to every single address uh in the country so uh it will eventually mostly be wireless delivery and and then therefore ip based peter sergeant 
I think it's because key to remember is don't confuse IPTV, which is a transport protocol with the physical media that it's going across. So whether it's wireless, fiber, coax, coax is it's a physical media. It transmits digital signals just as well as as fiber or wireless. So, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, Serge, Serge wants to come back in. And regarding the wireless, I agree with John uh, Jeff that the last mile is going to be wireless more and more. But I think the back end, the infrastructure is still going to be rely on the fiber because the the reliability and the speed is there. The wireless is always tend to be variable as a speed and reliability. Yeah, that that strikes me as being sensible. Uh, Jeff, another thought? Yeah, you know, and just as an example, um, uh, I'm in a a high-rise building and we have uh, quote-unquote Google Fiber available to us, but the reality is it's not hardwired to my building. It's hardwired to some building close to us in, in our community. And then, you know, they they hit all the surrounding buildings wirelessly. So our whole building is served wirelessly from some other building that actually has the Google Fiber. It's still really fast, shockingly fast and shockingly resilient. I'm in Miami Beach, shockingly resilient to weather and storms and everything, but it, this whole building is served wirelessly already. That's interesting. So you're not actual fiber, you're fiber adjacent with a enabling technology between your building and another building that actually has the drop. Exactly. That's, that's interesting. I've noticed uh, cable here. We have old copper into the building, but uh, I, I'm seeing as more and more channels serve more and more programming. And as my use includes not just all that entertainment media stuff, but also internet stuff and wireless control and internet of things stuff and the rest of that. I'm seeing momentary drops back in quality as network bandwidth just gets saturated and suddenly my TV will going back, will drop back to a pixelated mess for a few seconds before it catches up with the data stream and can serve me the picture that it's supposed to be serving me. Um, there's just a lot of data flowing through these systems and, uh, I wonder what the long-range possibility. That was interesting to hear that about your building being just the center of a cluster and them not actually dropping fiber lines to everything, but kind of cheating in that last, not last mile, but last few hundred feet. Um, Let's move on to the next question. And Jeff Cohen, our panelist, uh, changes uh, direction a little bit and asks, can the MixPre noise assist be used to post-process an audio file? Mitchell? Yes and no. I wish it was more yes than no. Um, it's not a plug-in that you can run in a uh, your favorite DAW. However, if you have a mixer that uh, allows inserts, you could insert it live uh, via a mix pre into the uh, the system and then uh, get that uh, that luscious noise assist, which we like so much. But that's the only way I know you can get it right now. Yeah. The, oh, Jeff Cohen. And I guess my question uh, more directly is, if I hand a file to someone that has a mix pre, can they run it through noise assist? Well, the only way that I could see doing it, is because it's not a live plugin except in the mix pre, um, is to do it as an insert in post-production. 
Yeah, there are other high-end noise uh, uh, noise reduction, intelligent noise reduction, which is what this is. Uh, this is similar to the Cedar system, I know, that has been around for a long time and that we've used on location a lot of noisy locations to do that kind of magic that we're talking about, which is to capture a print of the background sound that you want to get rid of. And then the algorithm in there reduces that while leaving the voice track, which is how I use it normally, alone. Um that you know the algorithms are pretty well understood now, but it depends on the nature of the pro, uh, the program or the uh, the the thing you're buying. Are you buying a plugin? Are you buying a program? Are you buying uh, the capability inside a device? Each of those are going to be a little bit different. Mitch, you had another thought. Uh, Mickey says Studio DNS would be the Studio. one to use. Okay, so Studio DNS. Um, and this actually stems from my, I have a show idea brewing. So I'm, I'm specifically asking or curious about the, the Mixpre Noise Assist. But um, so it sounds like that. So I like the yes, no. Yeah, well, that'll make for a good show. There's nothing like a little let's explore how it really works as opposed to how the marketing materials say that it should work. Uh, good, excellent. Let's move on to the next question. Well, Berto, especially from Santa Cruz, Bolivia, asks, does anyone know where to buy a Sony FX30 inside the U.S.? Seems backordered most places online. Mitch? Yeah, Gilberto, I, I, just, I know I'm not answering your question, but I've been searching uh, frantically here, and I've hit all the usual suspects like B&H and Adorama, and I'm confirming that they are backordered most places. For look, I think it's because it's a new release. Hmm. I, do you want me to go over and knock on the door? I, I happen to live about seven blocks from the Sony Monster West Coast facility, but I don't think they would let me in or have any idea why, why is this guy knocking on our door. Uh, I, people are really excited about the camera, so hopefully you'll be able to figure it out and they'll get whatever supply chain issues they're having done as soon as possible. Let's go on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, we talk about product X or Y being the solution to need Z, but what are some tools for nurturing cohesion within a group and keeping people's interest in a project, even when the project is not going well? Luckily, we have Nigel here. Nigel, take it away. I am prompted to remember the old phrase that uh, success has many parents, but failure is an orphan um, in terms of what happens when a project starts to go wrong. I think the reality is, you know, if the project is going wrong, you should find out why it's going wrong and make sure if it needs stopping, that it gets stopping. Uh, there's, there's an issue we talked about, I think, the other day on Monday. I mentioned called unstoppability, where people are unable to stop projects, even though they know they're going wrong. And that, that's a bad place. I think what's more likely is that as projects go on, and particularly long projects, and some people I know here have been involved in very long projects, what happens is you get drift uh, either in scope or in objectives or in, in, in patience. And so keeping the team focused on what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it and being willing to come back at regular intervals and restate and adjust as necessary is the best way to keep people uh, focused on what they need to be focused on. Boy, does everything you just said resonate with me. I've been on projects uh, back when I was working in the corporate world more. And, um, you know, sometimes... The target, you set a perfectly rational target in month one of an initiative, but now you're in month nine and the actual target has moved, the need has moved. And if you just blindly keep driving toward what the original goal was, even if you successfully get there, there will be no use in you being there. So uh, constant assessment, reassessment and intelligent de decision making as to whether or not the old target is still the correct target to be shooting for. I, critical to getting anything done well. 
Let's go on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas. What are the best live stream options for the 2022 FIFA World Cup? Nigel will start us out. So it obviously depends on where you live. But if you live in a large uh, U.S. city, then you probably, with a very cheap aerial, can pull this off Fox, uh, which is showing most of the games. If you're on Fox Sports 1, which is where the England game was yesterday, that will not work for you. Uh, if you are a streamer and you have something like an Apple TV, the chances are your local Fox uh, program um, local Fox Affiliate has an app that lives there. Uh, we use that, and we normally only get the news for free, and then it goes into paid, but they are showing the football, um, as we call it in the rest of the world, um, free without having to have a Fox subscription. Again, if the game is on Fox Sports 1, you're going to have a problem. Uh, if you want to start spending money, you then have uh, you know, YouTube TV or Hulu um, TV, which effectively gives you a cable subscription. The next step up is obviously to get a cable subscription. And then if you're crazy, you can go and buy yourself a satellite. <laughs> it is so complicated out there. I, I wanted to watch the game yesterday. So I started it up and I thought, okay, it's on Fox, but it was Fox sports through my cable provider spectrum. And it was running through my Apple TV and so I had uh, started the game, and then for some reason, I don't know why, I had backed up a little bit. So I was watching in the living room. My wife came home, and I said, they just did. And she said, well, I heard that five minutes ago because I was running five minutes behind the regular world because I had so many layers between me and that. And then eventually I went in, and I had to do a little bit of work in my studio. So I popped the same game open on my Apple TV, and I went, well, that's way farther along than I was on that system or the system before it. Things have gotten so complicated that <laughs> I'm going to have to put a gigantic uh, signal flow diagram on my wall. What am I tuned to today? I have too many. Many sources of the same things, uh, you know, modern things. I also wanted to note that we're down to just a few questions here in the queue, and we're at about the halfway point in the hour. So we can either switch over and talk about uh, audio things if anybody has audio things. Uh, for those of you who uh, I don't think I see very many audio only uh, questions, so we've just got one at this point. So if there are no more audio questions, we will be closing off not too long after the top of the hour, which is fine, whatever you want to do. But if you have additional questions, either about our regular topics or about audio topics, please toss them in now. Now, and uh, that'll let us keep going. Or if you, you're, you are the producers, the audience is the producers here. So if you don't have additional ones, we'll just end a little early today. Let's get on to the next question here. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas. Have the last two or three years of Zoom made people awkward in social situations? How do you relearn person-to-person -person social skills? That's an interesting question. Jesse's going to start us out. Absolutely. Yes, it has. Uh, the good news is it has done the same thing to pretty much everyone we work with. And we are enjoying this three to six month buffer period as we all get back into the flow of working in person again. Mitch Hill. Yeah, Paul, I'm having a problem in social situations. Uh, I can't answer anybody's question unless it goes next question. <laughs> we need that button that they used to have for that uh, the Circuit City. Uh, next question. Serge Blondin. Don't don't listen in back end. I didn't mean to say that. Serge? <laughs> um, I don't think it's only Zoom. I think it's the fact that we stayed home so much and we reduced all the social contact that we are now <laughs> have to relearn <clears throat> being uh, socially uh, beast. 
for the first year this year, in the last three years, I'm going to have a Christmas party with over 20, 30 people. And it's just re-put myself in the managing of it and re-put myself of, oh, I'm going to see that person and that person and we <laughs> need to make sure that everything is fine. And it's a, it's a relearn process. Mitch. Yeah, I notice that people uh, dress very well from the waist up, but from the waist down, they're wearing shorts uh, <laughs> at uh, gala affairs where they should be black tie. I don't know what that's about. And don't get me started on virtual backgrounds. Yeah, um, I, I do think this is going to take some time to work out. I, 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 because I have a son and he's got friends and and I, I deal with young people more than I probably otherwise would at this point in my life. Uh, I've seen a substantial shift, uh, and and the sons and grandchildren, even of people that I know and associate with, they've had a tough time over the last couple of years. A lot of kids who would normally socialize through the school experience have been either on Zoom school or otherwise kind of out of the stream of things. Um, I think it's going to affect a lot of things, and I'm certainly not qualified to explain them all or to understand them all. I can just see kind of intuitively that it's going to be a readjustment for a while. I think work from home is a piece of that. I think virtualization of so many things. Uh, always, We've always, since the dawn of the gaming generation, have had the why is Billy or Susie sitting in their room just playing video games all day long, and I think that's been nothing but exacerbated by this. Those are just my thoughts. Everybody will have their own uh, tear through this, but something society is going to have to deal with. Next question. All right, here we go. Tom Ferguson from Phoenix, Arizona wants to know, did we snag any Cyber Monday tech deals? And since Tom has weighed in on this, is there something you want to specifically note, Tom? Well, mine's kind of boring. I got a replacement keyboard, a foot pedal, and a cheese plate that I can't even eat. Oh, that's pretty good. Uh, I have a new... Uh, food processor thing coming. That's the only thing that my wife and I decided to do. We replaced our microphone, a microwave oven uh, a week and a half ago, and now we're going to another countertop appliance that does 14 things. Hopefully well, we'll see. Uh, they have uh, plates made from cheese? I don't get that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, yes, crudite is a huge thing, even if you can't pronounce it. And I can tell you a story about a disaster that I ran into by mispronouncing that horribly when ordering room service in a very fancy hotel. But I will not because I will be too embarrassed to uh, reveal that part of my life. Um, anyway, but let's just say the word crudettes was uttered and that was stupid. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Your secret is safe with us. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas asks, on the Mac, how do you move the dock and the menu bar around? Are there shortcuts or add-ons to make this easier? And we got a lot of people who want to play with this one. So this will be fun. Let's start with Jeff Cohen, then go on to Peter Sargent and more. So Jeff, take it away. Uh, sorry. Yeah, there, there are. And, um, you know, rather than um, do it manually, because, you know, what is the saying? If you do something um, more than once, you should, uh, you should script it. So let me just quickly see if I can show you this here. And... Um, that should be this. If you just tell me if you can see my computer screen now. I see code. Great. So this part right here, and I can drop this in the chat or you can just um, screen grab this. But but this will programmatically, uh, I, I'm 
slowly but surely shifting a lot of things that I've had automated with Apple Script into um, shortcuts on on Mac, you know, also iOS. And it's very limited so far. So, you know, there's some things they have made functions for shortcuts, but you can fill in those gaps with little blocks of Apple Script. And this is an example of one of those things. So right here, this is how you move the dock around and and it's just and it's super fast and it does the trick and i have for example i have an on-air shortcut that does a whole host of things loads up all the apps i need sets things in place sets the lighting you know does everything and one of the things is i kind of move windows and monitors around and it's super easy with just one hotkey Jeff, you get the you get the award today on the show for the geekiest way to do something. I mean, don't go to the dock and say left, bottom, or right. No, write an Apple script. And I think this is fabulous. And I am I want to applaud you for taking us down that pipeline. You can stop your screen share now if you would, and let's go on to Peter Sargent. <laughs> Peter? And 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 as they said on Monty Python, and now for something completely different. <laughs> I I would uh, I was just simply going to point out the uh, the simplest way for Paul to do this is go to the settings uh, menu from the Apple on the upper left-hand corner and select desktop and dock. And it has settings to, you know, left, right, bottom, disappear. I mean, so you can do it strictly through the settings. And it is now the, it's the antithesis of the, what, what Jeff just showed us. It is, it is strictly using the Apple uh, UI to do it. And it was so much fun. Uh, next, uh, no, Jesse Kessler. <laughs> You've got people who want to weigh in on this. This is fabulous. Jesse. Uh, there's one more way that you can do it, and that is by going down to your dock. And there's a vertical line here that you can right click on and go to dock preferences, and that should get you done. There you go. Left, bottom, and right are possibilities. Nigel? Uh, the only thing I have to add is you have a huge decision, Paul, to take, and you just saw it demonstrated in the last thing. Are you a permanent docker or a disappear or reappear at docker? And you are going to have to decide how you want to live your life. And that is, that's a really important and difficult decision. I suggest don't jump too quickly. Try it one way, try the other, and then make the decision. But uh, you'll be in one group or the other at the end. Unless you think this is simple, then you get into the world that I live in, which is multiple monitors. And which monitor do you want the dock to live on most of the time? And as Nigel was just indicating, sometimes I want the dock to be gone, like when I'm editing in Final Cut, I don't need the dock up. So I want the dock to be uh, pull my mouse cursor to the bottom and the dock will pop up. And it might be of a particular side. It might have revealed, whereas you slide over each program in the dock that's resonant, it grows or shrinks. There's a lot of animation to the dock and it can be fun, but I'm always rebooting my system and finding the dock on the screen that I didn't want it to be on. So there's a lot of interconnectivity in dock programming. And so welcome to the world of dock management. I hope you successfully did. Oh, we got more people in on this. Jeff Cohen, dive in again. Yeah, and all kidding aside, that's actually why I have it scripted is because I, I run usually with three monitors. And so moving it from left to right is not simply, you know, this side of the screen or the other. It means is it all the way to the right on the rightmost monitor or all the way to the left on the leftmost monitor? And as part of a whole host of other things, you know, so I have some, some shortcut scripts for all the different work scenarios, one of them being, you know, kind of live on air uh, or 
or if in my case, if I'm in my recording booth recording a voiceover, uh, you know, one script, one hotkey, and it does a whole host of moving apps around to the specific window I want, the placement on the window, as well as the dock position. There you go. It's the power of Apple Script and Shortcuts, which is the newest environment for doing some of these things. Peter Sargent. I suppose the good news here is we may have, uh, you, Paul may have found a uh, an alternative to the mic selection process by just increasing the number of screens and where he puts puts the docs and, and, and toolbar. Yeah, you could have a monitor screen per mic. And <laughs> uh, let's move on. But that was a fun discussion. And it shows you that every user has their level of comfortable with uh, comfort level of comfort with how complex they want to dive into these tools. Under the hood, these things are incredibly complicated or complex, but they have all these fabulous interfaces that make them easier, which I think is a great thing. Uh, let's dive into the next question. Next question comes from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. And Chad asks, Cyber Monday is gone. What are the next best moments to get deals for the gear we need? Uh, Tom Ferguson. Oh, heck, ignore all the hype that you're getting. And if you really want to get your adrenaline pumping, just wait until December 24th to go shopping. <laughs> there you go. Last minute desperation sales the day before. Nigel, the sow. Yeah, so I would tell you that if uh, technology, you probably uh, missed the window now until maybe a New Year's sale. Uh, for, for more consumer-based stuff, it really depends on how they think Christmas and the holiday season is going to be. And if Christmas and the holiday season looks like it's going to be rough, then you will start to see sales emerge uh, to try and drive some early sales. Uh, depending where you live in the world, if you're in the UK, for instance, then Boxing Day, which is the day following Christmas Day, would be the start of the sales. And then, of course, there's New Year. Uh, on the sales around that. But I think you've got two things working against you uh, in physical hardware. One is supply chain um, and the other is just, you know, the supply chain is not only about parts, but it's about transportation of those parts. So we've yet to see the news articles that FedEx and UPS can't deliver parcels for Christmas, which I predict will happen in the next week. In terms of software, uh, I think you're more likely to see deals come um, over the holiday period, particularly if people just need numbers to, to complete their year. I think Nigel has a good read on this. Also note, there are things like televisions that also have their moments uh, around the Super Bowl. There's always a ton of sales in the week leading up to that. And so there are classes of gear that everybody knows, you know, right before NAB, there's usually a lot of announcements. And then a, a month or so before that, I start seeing prices soften on the things that may be replaced with new, more fancy models at the NAB coming because people who make this technology know that when they introduce the new model, the old one loses some value. So there's a lot of uh, art to trying to figure out the right time to buy in different categories. Mitchell, you had something before we move on? It'd be a good uh, consumer because some people actually increase their prices during specialty sales. So watch <laughs> yeah, out. It can happen. That's right. Demand goes up. So do prices sometimes. Let's go on to the next question. Chris Sabato of Albany, Oregon says, I'm tempted by the current price of the 512 Audio Limelight Dynamic Mic. Does anyone have any experience with this mic? I have not heard anybody talk about it yet. We didn't have anybody raise their hand. Uh, I didn't have time to look it up. Does anybody on the panel have it, pull it up ahead of time and have any idea what this does? No, I guess not. So uh, this will be another one of those. We'll push back. If it's, um, if it's something that is getting a little more... Uh, 
airing a little more um, reputation, then please bring it up again and try to get it in as soon as you can in the day. And we'll research more about it and try to get some opinions form for you. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas. How do you hook up a tiny telescope to a mobile phone? Mitchell. With tiny fingers. No, um, there is oh. a bunch of rigs out there that uh, will slide onto the uh, camera and extend it with a lens or with a telescope. And they, they, connect over the uh, the camera lenses that are on your camera. Yeah, if you look up Samsung or, or iPhone uh, telescope adapter, you will find a variety. They're typically little plastic things, and they have some fiddly uh, controls top and bottom so that you can capture the eyepiece of the telescope and put it in a little plastic rig right at the camera of your phone and then kind of tune it up to get them. You know, they're, they're a little fiddly, but they do the job, and you can, you can get... Uh, your phone to record what's coming through the camera or telescope lens or binoculars, even for binoculars. Jesse, you had another thought before we move on? Oh, just don't forget, if you can put your phone on a telescope, you can put it on a microscope as well. And there's a lot of fun photography in that arena. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So adaptive optics is a, a pretty big aftermarket thing. They're not terribly expensive too. You can usually get one of those rigs for, you know, 20, 30 bucks. They don't have to be super expensive. Let's move on to the next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, a bit off topic, but my venerable water bottle died. Dropped it on concrete one too many times. What's your favorite carry bottle for long outdoor shoots? Ooh, Jeff Cohen will help us. I really had hoped someone else would, would chime in on this so I didn't have to. Um, but uh, as embarrassing perhaps as it may be, um, I buy a lot of gifts for my nieces from Lululemon and I rack up all these points and uh, I had to find one day, what do I use it on? And they have this water bottle that I don't know what kind of space age polymers or whatever they're using, but I mean, I put cold water in this without ice, go to the pool. I'm there for hours in the hot Miami sun and it's cold when I open it. So I don't know what voodoo they've done, but it's really good. Maybe more than just a vacuum gap between it. Peter Sargent, your thoughts? Yeah, I just use an algae bottle. Okay, I mean, yeah, I've those used, have been around for a while. Yeah, I mean, a good Boy Scout always has at least one or two of these handy. <laughs> there you go. And they're the, is it PCBs? I guess there's a PE something uh, free plastic that I guess important in this. Next, uh, oh, Jesse Cussler. Uh, I don't have it here to demo, but the water bottle I use is a thermos from, I believe, the 50s or 60s, and it keeps the water hot for over 48 hours. It's incredible. Wow, there you go. Javier. Uh, I use a metal one that is, I think I bought at a Target that has like a hook that you can uh, you can get it from anywhere. But uh, when I'm doing like long shots, especially in places that are far from water, I sometimes use like a camel, like the one like the runners use. So you can have it and you have like three liters. So it's like a lot of water that you can keep like really close by. Yeah, if you're in a, I, I used to work in Phoenix a lot. I never had one of the camelback kind of things, but water is incredibly important. Javier? Oops. Oh, that was Javier. I'm sorry. The Surge. camel again. Yeah, the camel again. I'm, I'm sorry. I got mixed up on my screen. Surge. My first go-to is my Contigo because of the the way it auto-shot uh, the lid. Uh, 
And I drink so fast that I need to refill. So if I don't have a way to refill, I will bring another water bottle with a thermal way to keep it cold though, for the time being. We could have a long debate about cold or room temperature that would go on for hours. But let's move on to the next question. Lois Richter, Davis, California, asks, if one does not use AppleScript, is there a collection of AppleScripts that one can grab and use? Jeff Cohen. I'll assume the question is if one does not use AppleScript yet, uh, and and there's lots. Uh, one I'll show you is, um, uh, if you can see this screen, uh, Sal Segoyan is is was the godfather of scripting and automation at Apple, um, and he uh, put up this and he has had ran this site. Uh, for years and years and years and has kept it up after they let him go. They let him go um, as a clear sign, by the way, that their focus and direction is on shortcuts, not on AppleScript. So, you know, they're not even really maintaining it or adding new features. So I would, uh, this said, I would highly encourage you to, uh, if you want to automate on the Mac, uh, at a minimum, there's lots of other tools, but, but really focus on uh, shortcuts. And like I demonstrated earlier, fill in whatever holes uh, that shortcuts can't do with AppleScript, but try and do it with shortcuts. Yeah. Sal for many years was the godfather of Automator, which was the program that we all got for free and probably ignored for the first two years we had our Macs and suddenly discovered it and went, oh my gosh, this thing does everything brilliantly. And I can't tell you how many hours of my life were saved by figuring out how to do repetitive tasks using Automator. So yeah, but I, I definitely agree with what Jeff was saying that uh, that's moving into the shortcuts environment. If you do not want to go into the programming process and use AppleScript or something like that, if your brain just doesn't work that way, you can still do a lot of things with the shortcuts environment in terms of pulling in and dropping uh, activity plugins and building little workflows and things like that. It should be a lot of fun. I think if I was young and just starting out in my computing career, I would dive into that as well. Um, let's see. Next question. Kyle Heyman from Chicago, Illinois says Samsung T5s are up in price. What are people's suggestions for alternatives? And we've got a few people who have alternatives, including Jesse Kessler. Jesse? We've moved from T5s to T7s, and even though the, the buffer cache is a little smaller on the T7s, I'd rather be shooting on a fresh T7 than a year or two-year-old T5. Jesse, have you had any, any problems with the, uh, the problem we used to have with T7s that they just didn't mount as easily? Have they fixed all of the whatever the firmware was on them so that they work like the T5s? Particularly, I'm thinking of in things like attaching them to Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras. We had problems getting them to read, so kind of everybody stayed away from them for a while. Uh, we still have problems. Okay. Okay. So for your use case, make sure before you uh, switch to T7s that they will do everything you need to do. Uh, Serge, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I think I heard the panel recommend a few months ago the SanDisk. Uh, I'm using one with my Blackmagic Extreme ISO, and I don't have any issue. So it might be a good replacement for the T5. Cool. There, one of the things about the Blackmagic cameras was they had a lovely little uh, small rig holder for the T5s that lets you mount it really securely. Has anybody come up? Do you know if they've come up with anything for the 
the SanDisk kind of things that do the same thing? Is anybody, I don't see any hands raising. So let's uh, move on. Nigel and then Peter and then Mitchell. So Nigel, go ahead. Yeah, did it for the SanDisk. Uh, you can get a two terabyte one for about uh, 250 bucks on Amazon. It says it's 50% off, but it's really been about that price and for a while. And I, I don't see much movement up or down in these prices. I, every so often I go on and see if the, uh, the four terabytes drop below $500 or something, but it's, it's never got there. But I really like these little ones. Excellent. Uh, Peter Sargent. I would just remind everyone that particularly in the case of Blackmagic, they publish a list of what are the devices they've tested with and will stand behind the fact that they will work with with their equipment. So uh, for a long time, the T7s were not on that list for certain pieces of equipment. The T5s were, and oddly enough, it depended on the case of the Blackmagic 6K, it depended on whether you're shooting 50 frames per second or 60 frames per second, whether or not you, uh, which one you could use. So buyer beware, read the directions. Excellent. Mitch Hill? Yeah, plus one on what Peter just said. Um, also be careful with the T5 and the T7. If you work them too hard or you get uh, close to halfway through them, they slow real down. They go way down there. Um, I use the, the G drives. All right. We've got a bunch of questions in the queue here and uh, more audio coming in. And I'm happy to see, I got a note here that one of our audio gurus is sleeping in, sneaking in for the second hour. So if you have uh, audio questions for today as advertised, please don't hesitate to throw them in. Uh, we'll keep getting better as we go. Jesse? Uh, just to be clear, sorry, the interfacing problems were with the Blackmagic pocket cameras, not with the ATEM. The ATEM seems to be much more forgiving than the pocket cinema cameras. Okay, so if you're using a T7 for uh, switching purposes and capturing data, you're not in a difficulty. If you're attaching it to the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, I know the 6K is the one that I use, so I've had that issue with it. Uh, it doesn't show up as reliably. So next question. Mark Giuliani, Washington, D.C., says, I have a Mixpre 3 and I need to send it back. And he wants to know, how does one move noise assist? from one mix period three to another. Tom Ferguson. Well, the bad news is the noise assist plugin is unique to each unit and cannot be transferred between the recorders. However, if it were me, I'd give a call to sound devices and twist their arm on the steel because it sounds like you have a unit that's failing on you. Yeah, they could probably re-serialize, serial numberize, serial numberize? That's not even a term. Serialize. <laughs> serialize. They could probably switch it for you at the shop. So, uh, yeah, let's move on to the next question. Kenny Hampton, Greenville, Illinois. With the proliferation of communication through text messages, what are some tools that site-restricted users utilize for both entering and receiving data via text message? Well, there's a long history of uh, all sorts of services that people who are have all sorts of visual impairment, you know, moving uh, from people who cannot see at all to people who have limited vision. Harshid, thankfully, is going to pop in. Sure thing. And so I use a lot of dictation. Um, give an example on the Pixel phones. They have started using uh, something called Quick Assist or Voice Assist or something. I can't remember the term, but it's Assistant to the Assistant. So you you'd hit dictation, but you could say simple terms like send or delete last word or something like that. Um, the other format uh, that really works out for a lot of people is to use the Siri, to use Google Assistant. 
but I don't necessarily recommend those because you lose the habit of using your device to its full extent. Uh, dictation is one thing because you could be on a form, you could be on a text message, um, you could grab links from a website, copy them, uh, YouTube, for example, paste them. So it's uh, far better to communicate with dictation versus using an assistant because the assistant might not capture all you have to say, then you have to argue with it and fight with it. And then finally, when you get the message done, you're fatigued. So uh, the best bet to communicate with cider or with little or no sight, I would say uh, dictation works best. Uh, according keyboards are your best friends. You could get a uh, iClever for 18, 20 bucks. Uh, there, there are plenty out there. I personally use a Logitech uh, what is it? The mechanical MX. Uh, I got the blue one. I should probably get the ortholinear. Uh, the blue one makes it a little bit easier to type. It has functionality where if I need to switch from a, uh, let's say, Mac or PC to a phone, I could still have a well-rounded um, way of communicating. So example, messages, I could post it up on a web link on my PC. I could then start typing and copy paste rate from my PC. So I don't have to necessarily be on that hardware device to complete that task. Very nice. All right. Hopefully that helps you out. Let's move on to the next question. Well, there to especially Santa Cruz, Bolivia, without breaking the bank, uh oh, how would you extend an SDI cable to cover a distance around 500 feet? Uh, Serge Blondin is going to help us. Serge? The um, the cheapest way to do it is to have a jump point that you, you will uh, use uh, an SDI splitter or something like that that will re-power the signal to be able to do another 200 feet or something like that. It's not the best way because you have you could have a problem that that jump point uh, lost power or someone touch it or anything like that that will cause a loss of signal. But it's the cheapest way I know of. Uh, Mitchell. I've seen fiber uh, adapters that'll go on there and transfer it temporarily to fiber and then undo it, decode at the other end. Yeah, so a, a middle leg that was something other than SDI. So SDI to fiber, fiber across the long distance, and then fiber back to SDI on the other end. But Very I imagine possible. that uh, the question was to not go with the fiber because fiber... Depending of the situation, the cost of passing the fiber will be prohibitive. You're right. He says in his first line, without breaking the bank. So uh, that could get a little pricey. All right. Let's uh, continue on to the next question. Next question from Hershey Trivedi in Daytona Beach. And here on the panel, he says, well, I love the company with office hours. I need some help with the decision. Should I go ahead and upgrade to Windows 11? It's a ninth generation i7, 2.6 gigahertz. 32 gigabytes RAM and all that fun stuff with NVIDIA discrete video. Uh, Serge has volunteered to help you. I see no issue with you having Windows 11 on that. The only thing is uh, I'm going to ask you to make sure that all the software you plan to use are compatible and know of to be compatible. It's not that there are a lot of software not compatible with Windows 11, but... Never know when you can cause a problem with your workflow. Excellent. And some of our audio gurus have, have showed up. I see Jeff Francis in the panel view. Chris Fenwick is here. We're going to uh, continue on the last couple of questions here and then make our switch over. Um, so next question. All right. Question from Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh. The Kilo Show voting Discord channel is now live. Find it under future shows category. 
guide the show vote on suggestions that appear in the discussion channel, same section, and offer support. The latest item is, should we make or order patches for the Killer Show? Thoughts? John Preto is going to help us with that. And then I'm going to uh, wag my finger at him because your patches were so cool that now everybody wants patches and we're going to have patches all over the place. So John, everybody, everybody wants patches. I, I printed these two. This is the original OH space, which many of you guys have. Here's the new mission patch for next year, which we just printed off. I print these at a site called thestudio.com. You upload your AI file and then they walk you through the process. Their lead time is usually around three to four weeks right now. So that's my only concern with having to order them on the studio, Josh. That's the only concern. It's really easy to do if we have the artwork. I'm not a graphic artist. Maybe Chris Fenwick can design those and we can uh, upload those to thestudio.com. You realize the cost of those is negligible, but then you got to buy a bomber jacket to put them on and they can be incredibly expensive. So, Harshid, you wanted to note this. Quick answer is yes, but any kind of uh, swag that we could get for office hours, shirts, T-shirts, polos, uh, badges, keep it coming. Badges? We do. Badges? Anyway, <laughs> moving on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace from, where'd he go? From Austin, Texas. What's the best swag you ever got at a trade show? Oh, that's a tough one, man. For those of us who have been to hundreds and hundreds. Jeff Francis, what's your, what's your answer? I actually have a JBL little Bluetooth speaker uh, that sounds great. And it's actually a really good, it's kind of replaced uh, the old Oratone for me <laughs> as like a, a way to listen to a, a mono speaker and see what it's going to list like what people are going to hear when they listen in sort of normal environments. Uh, it's my, it's my garage speaker. Most of the time. I was trying to find mine I, in my pen drawer here, but it, I don't see it. Uh, my dear friend, Chris Hurd used to give out a fabulous pen. That was a combination of laser pointer, um, touch screen pen thing. It actually had a pen and it could write with it. And I, there was one other function. I can't remember what it was, but uh, I used to look forward to getting a new one of those every year because I used it up entirely over the course. Do you have a DV info one? It looks like, no. Anyway, uh, let's move on to Chris Fenwick. Uh, I actually had a pair of uh, Hewlett Packard boxer shorts once. That was weird. Um, some of the events that I work at, which I can't actually, I, I don't actually participate in, I've seen some really spectacular, like, you know, leather briefcases and computer bags and stuff like that. I didn't actually get any. Well, I've probably gotten a few over the years, but it swag is interesting. You either go down the, I want something that's kitschy that somebody will never forget about, or some companies choose to go down the, I want to actually give you something that's classy that you're actually going to use. And I prefer the the classy ones, although... I don't know any classy people. Uh, Mitchell. Got a Sony satin jacket one time with the Sony logo on it said make believe or whatever that slogan was. <laughs> Tom Ferguson. Well, in the satin jacket routine, uh, I got one for Lotus Agenda. Who remembers either one of those? No, the jacket didn't help him much. Uh, Nigel. So often it's not what you see, it's who you know because there are different levels of swag. And there's the dumpster diving swag you get, which is the pens and the squeezy tools. And then I got this at a trade show. This is a Bang & Olufsen a Bluetooth speaker. 
Let me tell you, they were not giving these away generally, but if you knew the right person, you could ask. Yeah, that's very true. I remember one year I got, I went to NAB and because I knew the right people, uh, I got a, the nicest lanyard I've ever seen. And it was from Canon. I remember that. And it had, and this was many years ago before they were everywhere. It had a uh, little thumb drive in integrated into it. You couldn't tell it was a thumb drive unless you pulled the bottom part off. But the thing that amazed me is every year I would go and I would always get my badge, but then you'd have to get a lanyard extra. And it was always a hassle. So having a really nice black satin lanyard with a memory uh, thumb drive in it was very cool. Uh, Jesse Kessler and then Tom Ferguson, then we'll move on. I couldn't disagree with the panel more. My favorite swag is always stickers because it ends up on my hard camera cases. And I remember that trade show or whatever it was for the rest of my career. There you go. Perfectly uh, defensible position. Tom Ferguson. And probably the best piece of swag I ever got is going to go up in a rocket next year. And that is a 360 degree camera that I handed off to John Bretto. Excellent. Well, that'll benefit the entire community. We appreciate that. All right. We got a couple more to get through before we switch into the second hour uh, focus. So next question. Here's a question from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. Scripting in any language can simplify many tasks. Chad asks, can you provide a few examples of things you learn to do with scripts that save you time? Uh, next. Well, yeah. Um, I mentioned that I used Automator a lot and the most used part of it was I used to get constantly every few days a long uh, text document that I needed to break out into into individual uh, pieces. It was like a big run of show thing and I needed a card with each one. So I developed an automator script to do that, to take the, the carriage turns and or tabs and or whatever and break it all out and turn it into a folder full of things. And I probably used that a thousand times and it saved me probably a thousand hours of work. So that was really cool. Chris Fenwick and then Harshid, then Jeff Francis. Chris? At the, at the high level, the thing about scripting and I'm horrible at it. But what you what you always end up having to do is you have to you have to do the math so to speak like how much time is it going to take you to save time and will you save more time than the time that you put into trying to save time, right? And so uh, y your example uh Bill, I totally get what you're talking about. Sounds really cool and it obviously in your instance it it paid off well. But I think that a lot of times we think we're going to save time by trying to save time and we end up spending more time to try to save that time. And that just seems like a waste of time. Uh, the, the best thing that I ever made, I made a Photoshop, I don't even know what they call it, automation something. And this was nearly 30 years ago where I had to take a, 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 a image, a layer that needed a, a drop shadow. And this is before Photoshop just had the little tink, you turn on the drop shadow. And I had to select all the active pixels. I had to make a new layer. I had to fill it with black. I had to put it underneath. I had to select all. I had to blur it. I had to offset it by 10 pixels down and over. And I had to do this about 300 times for like 300 lower thirds for a show. And I wrote this little automator thing and I could just go click and it would go and then I said, you know, apply it to a whole folder. And I thought I was, you know, 
Jordy LaForge. It was pretty Isn't cool. it? It's a rush. It is a rush when you manage to do something like that. Uh, Harshid. I just want to share that scripts come in many flavors and many types of uh, things. So I use a screen reader called Job Access with Speech called JAWS. It's built off of scripts. And so if I need an application like Zoom or any others, people do build scripts. So I highly recommend the community to go out there, maybe uh, develop what you have if you're a programmer. If you like scripting or such, it will make you good money because accessibility makes a lot of good money. There you go, Jeff Francis. Very simple script uh, created in Apple Automator and turned into, I think they call it a droplet. So it's a little icon and I actually put it in the top of my finder window. And what this script does is it takes any uh, audio file and it compresses it to an MP4 AAC. And it's great because if I have a file that I want to send to a client to let them review it, I don't need to send them a full wave file. Uh, and sometimes it might be, you know, dozens or, or hundreds of takes from a session that they need to review. And so compressing that down to MP4 for review is great. Um, so I can just drag files onto that and it creates those files. Saved yeah. me so much time spent, you know, maybe an hour building it and it saved me countless hours using it. Those are the good ones. Javier. Uh, two the the one that I use the most are the first one I, I did it in Apple Shortcuts the new app that it uh, switches my lights to the, the when I start my workday it launches some apps it uh, switches the lights to the setting that I want to it put on the do not disturb so it's like something that I do every day so I prefer to instead of launching every app uh, by hand like doing it uh, all the way and since it can control the home automation and everything that Apple ecosystems it works perfectly. Uh, and the other one that I use a lot, I did it in Automator and it uh, creates a folder structure because in most uh, projects that I work, uh, we have a lot of people contributing. So everyone names things different, like put in different folders. So I created a, a script that made like a folder structure where it's like, even it's numbered. So like the folder, first number uh, folder is named like one brief and the second one, like all the budgeting and the third one, the logistics and the fourth, uh, like references. And inside that, uh, maybe uh, like an art references and music reference. So that keeps like all the projects when ev anyone gets to a project can browse it and see the folder structure and understand it. And if you try to do it by hand, you always forget one folder or one name or else. And that keeps it everything like clean and ordered. Surge. Uh, two uh, two things I want to mention. First, I agree with Chris that sometimes the, the the time you need to program something or script something will be so much time that you will not save anything. Uh, to well, use the tool, look for a tool that might have already these uh, automation already uh, set up in it. And if you really need a script, look on Google. Someone might have already a script that do pretty much what you want if it's not 100 percent what you know what you want you think you can take the script and just modify what you need and you don't have to rethink everything that's where you save a lot of time jeff cohen before we are getting close to the end of our first hour list and then we'll be switching over so jeff you know, the one thing, uh, Chris is absolutely right. And, and, you know, anyone that's dove into scripting is, well, I mean, on this one thing, Chris, and, and so anyone that's dove into scripting certainly has reached that point where, you know, now you've spent way so much time in trying to get this thing to work that you will never recoup that time in, in all the time that you will save from now till eternity. But 
you know, the one thing I'll say time and time again, even in the quest to do that, you're going to learn things and discover features and, and capabilities that maybe it doesn't help you here. And maybe you really waste a lot of time, but, but it will help you for something else. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would encourage you to, you know, think about what Chris said, cause it's absolutely true. If it's something you're going to do once or twice, no point in automating it. But, you know, if you're going to do something, you know, really complex and, and do a launch a bunch of programs and, you know, like Javier, I, I have something similar. Uh, it's my good morning script and it, it launches all the apps I'm going to typically use and places them in the exact position. I mentioned uh, I have an on air script that um, loads the specific apps I need with a digital audio interface. It actually loads the specific settings. So I'm at the predetermined gain. I also can automate um, different audio interface settings for different projects. So specific gain settings, specific headphone settings. So that's really nice to be able to lock something in. And then one other trick I'll, I'll mention is if you don't have easy access to do home automation so i also with that i close curtains i set lights uh if you are using anything else like smart things or ifttt uh ifttt now has an app integration but only on ios for whatever reason so there's okay. now an app module for ios shortcuts that will directly launch uh, IFTTT, uh, whatever they call them now. But but all of those typically offer web hooks, which you set up on IFTTT or on SmartThings, and it basically gives you a URL, and then you can plug that URL into your automation script, and it will do that other thing. So it's super handy. Nice. Okay. Uh, we have a couple more questions and then we're going to switch over. So let's get to the next one. Douglas Carmichael wants to know, has Blender been used for professional level 3D workflows or is it confined to lower budget workflows? Mitch, then Jesse, real quick. Mitch? Sure has. It's a very deep program, open source. It's just got some GUI issues, but uh, I use it. It's also very helpful for uh, transcoding uh, files from one form to another, so you can use it in C4D if you need to. Jesse, you have a thought? I think you'll see it in low to mid-range. I don't know how much Blender you're going to see in Avengers Age of Ultron, but we definitely uh, we definitely source from Blender users when we need CGI because there's a large install base in our budget range. And we have one more question before the second hour transfer, so let's dive into it. One more from Douglas Carmichael. He says, my dear friend Spencer, the developer of Project Nocturne, develops in Unity, but Unreal Engine seems to rule the live slant virtual production roost. Which one is more marketable in our industry? I think it's safe to say that Unreal Engine is a juggernaut now, and it's pretty hard to, uh, you know, if if you understand that heavily, I can't imagine you not finding work for a long period of time. I have not, you know, I think Unity's coming on. It's a strong contender, but right now, I think more people talk about the former rather than the latter, but who knows where it's going to go. All right, that should finish up our first hour, our second hour audio discussion. For those of you who uh, got the note and said that we're going to be diving into audio for the second one, we have some of our audio experts here on the panel. So, so let's just make the transition and slip right in. First question from Tony Mobley. He says, I have a house of worship question. My worship leader was using bone connecting mic and headset. She stopped using them because another leader is in the same room. 
What microphone will help them both in Zoom worship experience? And Jeff Francis, our audio guru for today is here. Jeffrey, what do you think? Tony, I think, first of all, we need a little more information. Um, my first question is, are these two leaders in two separate instances of Zoom and yet sitting in the same room together? That's going to cause huge problems unless they are completely isolated, meaning that they're their headphones need to block out external sound so that they don't hear the acoustic sound of the other person talking in the room. And their microphone needs to be isolating enough that their microphone only picks up them and not the other person. And that may have been the problem they were having with bone conduction, but it's, you're not uh, not clear from the question whether they're both in the same instance of Zoom uh, through some kind of mixer and camera switcher or if they're in actually two instances of Zoom. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. Would bone conduction, I mean, it, you know, because it's relying on a physical transducer on your body, I can't imagine a lot of crosstalk between them. Jeff, do you have experience? Does that happen if you have two people on bone conduction mics next to each other that one picks up the sound of the other? I think they're not getting it from the microphone. I think what's happening is the headset is not blocking out the room sound. So they're hearing ah. the other, the other pastor through Zoom late. And they're hearing them in real time acoustically across the room. Ah, that makes so what perfect they need sense. Is, that would be they need yeah. is headsets that block out or or noise noise canceling. Yeah, that would be disorienting to the extreme. Kenneth had a thought. Yeah, that's exactly right. The the whole concept of bone conduction headsets is to allow you to continue to hear in real time in your environment. And that's exactly what you don't want to hear now because you're going to hear the same thing delayed through the headset. So that's disconcerting to all of us. Uh, and as Jeff suggests, uh, well, I think physical separation would be the best thing, but uh, put each one in a closet. But good good uh, earmuffs would be the, the way to, to uh, get around that and not use the bone conduction headsets. Yeah, I, I noted before I did a brief stint as a stadium announcer and hearing yourself back with a one or two second delay is virtually impossible to deal with unless you're a professional and you've really conditioned yourself to do it. Jeff, you had another thought? The other thing would be to try to use one instance of Zoom, but then you're going to need either both of them close to the same microphone and hearing the same audio feed from Zoom, or you're going to need a um, person running an, an audio mixer and a video switcher to switch their feed into Zoom. But basically, it's the, it's the two Zooms in one room. You, you really can't do that because there's so much delay. Okay, we have a few more audio questions here. So we'll end a little early unless people have other things they want for our audio panel today. Let's go on to the next question. Brody Hefner asks, what's the recommended approach to gain staging audio in a Zoom setup with the MixPre interface? There are gain settings available on the Mix Pre, in Zoom audio settings, in the computer's audio settings, and sometimes on the mic itself. Javier, we'll start us off here. I would start from the beginning. That's meaning that I will start with the mic. So uh, I will start like setting everything at zero. So no pads or attenuation on the microphone. And if it has like a volume knob, like some USB mics has it, I'll put it in a zero with like no gain or attenuation. Uh, and then uh, Zoom, I never left Zoom uh, audio compensate or uh, anything like that uh, with the software that just like keeps the volume up or down. Uh, so leave everything at zero and then start with the mix pre because that's like the, your main gain staging. So you try to give the level with that. 
just uh, if the volume coming in, even if you're in zero, goes too hard, then you can start engaging the attenuation pad on the microphone. But if not, I will control the gain with the mix pre and then uh, repeat Zoom. I wouldn't let Zoom touch my audio gain. Chris Vanwick. Chris, you're muted, I believe. Somehow. I'm yeah. by unmuting. Yeah. The thing about gain staging is you have to start by unmuting your microphone. <laughs> it works best. Uh, so the, it's a good, good example. Though. You really do have to start at the source. Um, the, the best tell, telltale sign of poor gain staging is when you can hear something quietly that is distorted. Okay, if you think about that, it's quiet, but it's distorted. And that just means it got distorted further up the chain. And then somewhere downstream, you pulled the volume down to make it not loud, but it's still distorted. It's quietly distorted. So the only way to deal with that is you have to start at the beginning. And ideally, if you can listen, at various levels of the gains, uh, at the various uh, points, uh, that can be handy in today's day and age with everything being completely digital. That's a lot harder to do, but you have to start at the beginning. And um, I will tell you a tip. It's not a tip. I'm going to confess a poor, uh, poor uh, choice of workflow. Workflow is not the best thing. I have a mix pre and uh, I also have a Korg nano controller. It's a little MIDI, M-I-D-I uh, volume. It's a little tiny mixer, little, little tiny faders. Um, and I set my gain. Uh, looks like I'm a little hot, aren't I? I set my gain at my microphone so that when I push the fader for my mic channel all the way to the top, it's where it should be for this show. Don't Mickey's Mickey's commenting in my ear. Um, I don't recommend doing that, but it's what I do because that way, if I want to get my mic back to where it's supposed to be, I just push that fader all the way up. There's a million other places I can gain it down, but it's uh, it's what I do. Don't do Not it. <laughs> Nigel's going to help us out too. Nigel? Yeah, yes, I too have one of those uh, Korg things, although you have to play with the faders every morning, otherwise it doesn't recognize it or I'm doing it wrong. Um, I would tell you that, uh, and it's sort of an adjacent point here, that Keith Harrison in March of 22 published uh, on Makana a guide to setting up side tone on your Mix Pre 3. Uh, if you can't find it, send me a message and I will uh, send you a copy. I keep it uh, around my personage all the time. I think it's a real, if you're a Mix Pre user, it's really a useful tool to check that your Mix Pre 3 is set up sort of a la Mickey if you can't get him on the phone. Um, and that will help you at least get that side of it right. And then you'll have the side tone to listen to. Jeff Francis. So if you're dealing with a sort of computer 
microphone, something in the OS, AirPods, or the mic built into your computer, there's going to be a control in the software OS, and Zoom talks to that. So that's the audio slider that's in your Zoom settings that also changes that same slider. If it's a USB interface, whether that's a USB microphone like the Shure MV7, I think I have the number right, or a USB interface from like a Mix Pre 3, then the gain stage is going to be upstream towards the microphone. So if it's a pure USB mic, like a Shure MV7 used as USB mode, then you need to do the settings on the Shure microphone itself. If it's an XLR mic, which could be that Shure MV7 plugged into an X, uh, into a Mix Pre 3, then you need to do the gain staging in the analog mic preamp, and that's going to be in the Mix Pre 3. And Mitchell to finish this up. Yeah, Jeff has a good example there. Um, I hear a lot of people, the MV7, punching the uh, the volume all the way up, and they have auto set on Zoom, and you just get that crushed, you know, compressed sound. So uh, best not to use auto, and best to allow the, uh, the, the microphone to do its job ahead of just as uh, Jeff was saying. There you go. Uh, some Hopefully some help for you, Brody. Let's move on to the next question. Lois Richter from... Davis, California says, if I can't use my good mic, would a gamer's headset with a microphone be okay to record a radio show? Or would the IMAX built-in mic be good? I have two hours to set up. We have a lot of people who want to weigh in on this. We're going to start with Chris Fenwick. Lois, I would uh, highly recommend you don't try the gamer's headset. They just have a sound to them. It's highly compressed. It it sounds like you're trying to, yeah. I mean, two hours. You should be able to set up your other mic. I would, I would push through to 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 use your good mic, as you put it. Jeff Cohen. Yeah, the answer is yes. You know, both of the the points in your question are very relative, right? Your good mic, what is that, and is it okay? I mean, you know, what's the definition of that? It depends. Uh, what's the nature of the show? Um, you know, how do you want to come across? How often are you on the show? Is it something you do regularly and you should think about a better solution? I mean, gaming headsets also to Chris's point, aside from the sound are pretty bulky. I mean, if you're able to have your gamers headset with you, I, you know, I would ask the question, why don't you have the good stuff with you? You know, there's also, I mean, if, if for whatever reason it's transporting the equipment, everything else, you know, there's some pretty good USB microphones now, you know, they're not going to replace the best inner face and XLR mic, but you know, one I'll point out is the, the Rode Video Mic NTG. It's a Rode shotgun mic and it's super flexible. It can, uh, you know, it can, uh, you have to buy different cables depending on what you want to use it for, but you can go into 3.5 millimeter. There's a lightning cable to go right into an iPhone or iPad. Um, so it's really flexible for that one mic and pretty reasonably priced. Mitchell. Uh, we spent some time last night on After Hours with Lois. Uh, it's also a reason why she's not reading today, is that both of her uh, USB inputs are exhibiting a problem with her Yeti mic. She did an upgrade to the software. Uh, we turned that software off. We tried to slush back. So even her backup microphone, which is, I guess, another Yeti, um, is not going to work on her iMac. So from my ear, what I heard you experimenting with uh, last night before I had to go to bed um, was that, believe it or not, that iMac microphone in a pinch sounds pretty good as long as you stay close to it. 
Um, it sounded okay to me. I don't wouldn't go to the headset because of the reasons that uh, Chris was saying, and also I didn't get a chance to hear it. I thought your iMac sounded okay. Uh, Jesse Kessler. I I would test them, and I I don't disagree entirely, but about nine times out of ten, I'd rather have a cheap microphone three inches from the source than an expensive microphone three feet from the source. So it, this really goes back to testing, but I wouldn't write off that gaming headset straight away. Jeff Francis. When you consider the iMac built-in mic, you need to consider the room, how noisy is the room, how reverberant is the room. So if you can get a dead enough room, the iMac can work. And it may be a situation where you have to put some uh, sound absorbing material, blankets, pillows, cushions uh, out of frame around you to deaden down the room in a pinch. Done that in hotel rooms. I've grabbed pillows off the bed and built a little cloud around my computer when it's the only mic I had. And Jeff Cohen. I'll just throw the question out there for Lois and, and Mitch. Maybe you know if the USB ports are, are completely not working. Um, did she try the 3.5 millimeter jack on the uh, uh, on the iMac? That's an interesting thought, Mitchell. Um, I we tried everything. Um, There's just something very very weird going on with her uh, setup. We had four or five of us trying to work through it. Because and, uh, if that works, you know, with uh, TRRS, you know, even the Apple uh, earbuds, in other words, just to test if that works for both ears and the mic, then again, it, barring fixing the whole computer, you can get a mic that just has 3.5 millimeter like that road or something else. And then that could conceivably work through there and it'd be better than if that's what her uh, headset does. But how would you patch just, the how would you patch the three point five millimeter input into Zoom? I don't recall seeing a Zoom setting for that. USB it usually sees directly. It, System it's audio. considered the in, it's considered the internal mic at that point. Whatever you plug into that jack. Ah, okay. So it, and Lois just updated us. Uh, USB is fine. It seems to be a Yeti specific problem on two microphones. Ooh. Well, it's not the world's most expensive microphone, and they have sold a lot of them. So maybe it's a production issue. Maybe there were some bad chips or something. Hard to say. Hard to say. I'm not pointing a finger. I'm just saying when you see two pieces of hardware and both of them fail in the same way, that's always a little bit of a red flag to me. Um, I think we've talked around this a ton. Um, let's move on to the next one. Oh, oh Jeff, I'm, well, yeah, we were. I'm sorry, I pulled the trigger, and and they did in the back end. So sorry, Jeff. We'll come back. Next question. Hersha Trivedi of Daytona Beach, Florida. Can someone explain the advantages of MIDI, especially in an audio chain that supports MIDI inputs and outputs? Chris Fenwick, for example, uses a Triton in his setup. Let's start with Jeff. Jeff. Uh, so the first thing to think about MIDI is what MIDI is not, which MIDI is not audio. MIDI is simply performance data. So when you touch a MIDI keyboard, there are MIDI sound generating, uh, sorry, there are MIDI generating devices, which are performance instruments. You, you do something, you press a key on a keyboard and it sends a MIDI message. Play middle C now. And then there are MIDI sound generating devices, which take that information and turn them into an organ or an oboe. Um, but there are also alongside that MIDI can be used as controller information. So you could have a slider that sends MIDI data. But the important thing is MIDI is not sound, MIDI is not audio, it's just controller information. That's very helpful. Javier, you want to take it from there? 
Yes, and exactly like taking it where Jeff uh, just said, uh, the, 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 the advantage of having it like performance information is that you can alter it after it's been recorded. I mean, you can do that in audio, you can like edit and move around, uh, but if you modify, for example, like duration of a note or maybe like one note, make it like smoother. If it's in audio, you're going to degrade it. We have tools now that, that can that can do it like, I don't know, like Melodyne. Now you can, if you have a chord, like a three note chord, you can switch uh, one of the notes around, but you're, uh, you're modifying the audio and it's going to get worse every time you do it. Uh, in MIDI, you can alter everything. Like you can say, okay, let's transpose this like one semitone or three semitones or you can move it anywhere you want and if you some of the keyboard players i know they do exactly with triton and other uh that have midi in and midi out they can perform it then like just uh, adjust some things like some volume or some notes that they are not so happy about and then uh use the midi in like to get the the midi again to the keyboard and then as jeff said the the then the keyboard becomes a, a midi well an audio performance it reads the midi data and sends the new performance out so you can have like a perfect like human performance but then like uh, make it the perfect uh, or you can move it if the, if the singer needs to a uh, higher or lower or you can modify in MIDI without degrading anything in audio. Jesse Kessler. Uh, one of my favorite advantages of MIDI is that that has been road tested beyond anything I can imagine. It is so reliable. There you go, Chris Fenwick. So first of all, uh, Harshid, I don't know what a Triton is. So somebody's giving you bad info. I don't know what that is. But here's here's the way I like to think of MIDI. If I put a video camera on a couple of guys playing chess with the cheapest little travel chess set with little tiny plastic pieces, and I videotaped it, I'm done. But, and, and Preto will, could chime in on this, but if you knew all of the like chess lingo, I want to move my queen to pawns bishop seven or whatever, like I don't know what I just said. But if I took that information and I told these two people to play the game that I'm reading to them with the cheap chess set, and then I pulled the cheap chess set away and put the most beautiful marble and glass and gold or whatever chess set in front of them, and then I read the same information, you'd get the same chess game, but you'd get it more beautifully shot because you're taking the exact same information but you're you're just replacing it we recently had a client who came in and said uh hey this song that we had custom made we'd like to change it up a little and i said talk to the composer because if we can get the midi data from them because it's all keyboard stuff if we get the midi data for them we could literally just swap out instrumentation so you can say, so see this part here that did, 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 that's played on a violin? What if we played it on a flute? And you could take the MIDI data that played the violin and replace the sound uh, module. And instead of playing off of a violin, play it, play a flute sample, but the same move your queen to rooks, bishop, 12 or whatever. I think I just made a chess set too, too large. So basically what we're hearing is that MIDI is not musical data, it's control data, and it controls things that make music, among many other things. Uh, interesting. Let's move on to the next question.
Douglas Carmichael. Many arenas and stadiums talk about allocating a large space for a mixed position, something like 20 by 24. With the proliferation of compact control surfaces like the Allen & Heath CTI 1500, will, the, will that be a thing of the past? And Jeff Francis is going to help us here. So the front of house position needs to cover sound. It needs to cover lighting. It needs to cover iMag image magnification. So there may be a video switcher and cameras. There could be LED wall, uh, you know, all kinds of computer uh, stuff running there. So it's more than just the mix position. And usually that's something that's designated in the rider of the group. So the venue is going to hold a space that's going to satisfy like the largest typical uh, event that's coming through. Um, I imagine we'll see that space shrink slightly over time just so they can sell more seats. <laughs> Always top of mind for whoever's making the money off of that. Chris Fenwick. Whoops, you're muted, Chris. When the equipment gets smaller, the space will get smaller. Absolutely guaranteed. What I currently do in 80 square feet in this room used to be hundreds of square feet in multiple rooms. And actually the picture that I output is much better than it used to be. So yes, you will get much less space. Oh, Jesse just pinged in here at the end. Oh, when the equipment gets smaller, people seem to find a way to bring in more different types of equipment. <laughs> that has been known to happen on occasion. Javier? And uh, not only equipment is important to have there, uh, even though equipment gets smaller, the, the mixed position is a vantage point in any uh, arena or place. So you have that space needs to be not only for people uh, doing the decisions, uh, well, like that, like doing the stuff, but taking the decision. So you have to have that place where all the audio, video, and lightning guys have to stand there and have a perfect view, a perfect sound, and everything. Even though you can control your uh, the the mixer from the iPad in the stage, it's better to have a place where everyone can be like working there. All righty, let's move to the next question. Matthias Hutela from Helsinki, Finland, asks, any headset lavalier microphone recommendations with Limo 3 pin connector? Use case is speakers on stage and will be used with Sennheiser SK50 and SK3063. Jeff's going to help us here. So I would go with either DPA or Countryman. Um, and you need to decide whether you want headset, uh, whether you want headset with two ear loops or one ear loop, two ear loops go on easy. And so if you're putting them on people quickly and changing them out, those are great. They sometimes get a problem with hair in the back. If people have long hair, um, that can be a problem. So then a single ear loop headset works well. Um, you will definitely get better uh, feedback rejection or gain before feedback if you're using a headset where the mic is to the side of the mouth as opposed to a lavalier mounted down on the chest. But uh, DPA and Countryman uh, both have Limo connectors. If that's out of your budget, you can look for a company called Microphone Madness that makes sort of knockoffs of those that are fairly decent for speech. Um, they can't really handle the level of singing. Um, and I've just looked, um, Polson, if you remember from the early days of office hours, the Polson and Pile headsets, which were, you know, 12 to $15, um, those come in just about every wireless manufacturer connector, except the Limo. 
So that's you're out for that one in the extreme cheap side of things. Yeah, I was just going to note in in the upper end uh, wireless microphones or lavaliers or headsets, you can usually specify which connector you like. So you don't, you know, it's not that this brand comes with this connector. You can order a high end Countryman and specify I want it terminated in XLR. I want it terminated in one of these other Limo connectors or something, and they'll 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 give it to you how you want it. It's a little more bespoke than uh, just ordering the product and accepting what it comes with. So let's move to the next question. James Haldane from Vancouver, Canada wants to know, does the Yamaha LS9 and the QL1 use the same expansion cards? Jeff? No, they do not. The earlier Yamaha consoles, LS9, M7CL, and the... I'm drawing a blank on what the other one is. Someone will tell me. They use a 16-channel card slot. And going to the CL series and the QL series... And the TF series, they've gone to a 64-channel card slot, uh, basically to support Dante. Um, so the cards are not compatible. All right, there you go. Next question. Jeff Francis from Columbia, South Carolina, and right here on the panel, does anyone want to hear the Apple wired earbuds into the 3.5-millimeter headphone jack? Jeff, mm. go in. <laughs> Jeff, do you want to? Yes. He does want to hear that. Okay. Well, All right. So let's let's see if this will work. So this should still be my actual microphone. And if I switch over to the external microphone, now are you hearing me on this earbud? Somebody give me a Yes, in fact, we are. Hearing. We could hear when you switched. Okay. So there's the sound of the Apple wired headphones sort of drooping down below my chin. Um, and that's an option uh, for Lois plugging into the iMac. And for intelligibility, I mean, we can hear every word you're, say, you're saying. We can understand the communication. So in terms of information delivery, it is working just fine. In terms of qualitative differences, there is a significant difference between the sound of those two things when Jeff's on his regular mic versus when he's on the in-cord mic from a set of wireless or wired headphones. Whether or not that quality difference is mission critical for you, you know, uh, that's up to you to decide. I mean, if, if it's your only choice and you've got to get out audio out of something, that's fine. You can hear what somebody's saying. Uh, aesthetically, it may not be as pleasing, but it's certainly quali you know, qualified in that respect. Jeff, you had another thought about it? Yeah, I'll just say, uh, if you need that in a pinch, the the biggest problem, as Jeff actually demonstrated, uh, will really pick up if you have a beard, um, and also if it's rubbing against clothing, especially depending on what you're wearing. You know, so you'll see sometimes people they're just kind of holding the mic out in front of them, and that's at least going to avoid all that rustling sound that you heard. Again, it's not going to fix the mic, but it will avoid those things. And just as an aside, just a funny thing I was able to do: if you happen to have a friend that uh, has the capability with the lab to do uh, custom silicon molding. I had a friend that took impressions of my ears and then made custom silicon um, uh, molds on the earbuds. And it is incredible what a difference it makes to the sound of these. You know, they're just okay, decent earbuds, but it's incredible when it's that perfect seal that this does, um, how good these cheap earbuds sound. Uh, Jeff Cohen, uh, Jeff Francis. 
It's it's a good solution when the other option is someone shouting at their laptop. So it can get the mic at least close to them. Um, you can put a short extension cable on that because it does restrict you as far as distance from that. And you kind of get this wire that's dangling around. So if you can get a short extension, I would keep it. I'd try to get a three foot and you can maybe go with six feet, but you do begin to get into noise problems, extending that very delicate unbalanced signal. Um, but you can use a short, make sure that the extension cable you get is a TRRS needs to have those four connections to get stereo audio and microphone. Makes sense. Let's move to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, I've been looking at a sequential Profit 5 slash 10. Considering it only has a mono output, would it make more sense to get the 5 if it'll be used along with other synths for a specific role in a track and not a lead instrument? And Douglas, unfortunately, no one has raised their hand on this. I'm not sure if anybody on this panel is familiar with the Profit 5 slash 10, uh, but... It is, we have so many people come through here that this is going to be one of those circumstances where hang on to the question and uh, bring it back another day and maybe you'll have more luck with it. Sorry, we just don't have, well, Jeff Francis has a, a last minute thought here, Jeff. Um, I'm vaguely familiar with it. And I think what the reason Douglas will be getting it is for the sound of that particular synth. So if it's the sound you want, go for it. There you know, you it, if it's one instrument, uh, you know, mono is really important i mean lead vocal is arguably the most or i would say inarguably the most important thing of most popular music and that lead vocal is up front center mono uh, because it connects there you go uh next question hershey trivetti of daytona beach florida what's your most budget setup for a solid quality setup with an xlr mic and interface include the cables and the cost if possible Fenwick's going to start us out. Chris, take it away. So, Harshi, the thing, the thing that I would recommend is, uh, and we've been talking about this a lot lately, about when you, when you have a problem to solve, uh, you have to pick the right variable with which to solve it. And oftentimes, uh, money is the wrong one to do. You, you, you'd be better off buying something that's really good, that will last longer, that's going to sound great, a lot of times we, we back into the problem of budget um, in a way that's detrimental. Uh, I always use the phrase, buy once, cry once. And this is why I really like the Shure MV7. Because if you want a quality XLR microphone, it sounds great. But you can use it with USB until you have the money to buy a quality, not a budget, but a quality uh, uh, input gizmo thing and, you know, good cables. Like it, it's, I, I, I never try to tell people to spend a lot of money. That's not worth it. Uh, this is a bad group of friends to hang out with if, if, if you're on a tight budget, but, but the MV seven is a great way to get a good microphone that you can start using it in a very budget friendly way via USB and you know, save your shekels until you can actually buy, you know, a really good input. And, and at that point, you know, it's a different discussion. Javier. 
I agree completely with what Chris just said, uh, but I think you can another option from Shore that is like a perfect budget solution, but also a good quality and good build and sturdy microphone is an SM58, like a classic mic, and it uh, it's very very uh, it, it it takes a lot of damage and it keeps working perfect and it, that's a that's a good idea and it sounds good maybe not the best sounding mic but it sounds good and it's around 90 dollars or 80 something and uh, i would pair that with a behringer euphoria interface that is like i think around 40 or 50 dollars or you have a pretty decent xlr setup for less than 130 140 dollars jesse uh, the most inexpensive we go for interfaces is uh, the Zoom H5, and there are cheaper Zooms than this. The reason we go with the Zoom is because we use it in studio and we use it in field, and this kind of covers both those arenas. Uh, the one thing you want to look at with the Zoom is to make sure that it has the uh, physical dials on it. You don't want to be doing your volume with a digital interface. There you go. And Harshid, uh, is your question? Have any uh, yeah. thoughts? I just had a thought on that, and I agree with the budget. Uh, I like to keep it in uh, quality rather than cost. Uh, cost is always going to be detrimental, I think. But to, in this day and age, everybody's trying to get into the same creative space or you know, do singing and get into this uh, world that we're in virtually. So it's sometimes hard, and you get a lot of pushback when you start saying, hey, the mic's going to cost you 100 the interface could cost you 180 uh, cables could cost you 40 And then you know, they're just like, oh, I don't have that budget. So. Yeah, well, I understand that. The peripherals sometimes surprise you, uh, particularly as you move up to more and more expensive gears. Sometimes their peripherals get equally more and more expensive and drive you crazy. Next question. Lois Richter, Davis, California. Other than listening to all the old Office Hour shows, what's the matter with that? What would you suggest as the best way to learn about basic audio subjects? Any favorite tutorials? Jeff's going to help us out, Jeff. Uh, I've kind of cheated because I saw uh, Lois has a question later. I would recommend that she do what she did there, which is to take a specific topic and ask a specific question. So we'll wait for that coming up later. Okay. In fact, I just went to look ahead. I didn't I didn't realize we had that many questions left to go through. Uh, Chris Fenricks wants to weigh in on this. Chris? Yeah, Lois, you don't have to listen to all the shows. Just listen to the ones about audio. There you go. Harshid, uh, next question. <laughs> Rashid Trevetti, Daytona Beach, Florida. Should we really consider the new USB mics that seem to gain momentum, such as the Rode NT Plus, USB, DX, Neom, and more? And, uh, whoops, I was down at the bottom of doing something. Jeff Francis is going to help us out here. Jeff? Yes, we should. They're just getting better all the time. There you go. Simple as can be. Let's move to the next question. Rody Hefner, I recently found a nice Shure SM58 mic at a thrift store for $3. It came with its foam windscreen. For use indoors, will the foam serve as an adequate pop filter or better to use a pop filter without the foam? Uh, Chris Fenwick and then Jeff Francis. Chris? Just, just try it. It'll probably be fine. $3 SM58. Even if it doesn't work as a mic anymore, you have a spare hammer in your, work, in your workshop. <laughs> Jeff Francis. So the 58 is designed to be used <clears throat> without a pop filter. So the windscreen is for wind, for when you're outside. A windscreen and a pop filter are slightly different. What I would do is take that old SM58 and unscrew the top because probably what you have is two layers of metal mesh as a 
pop filter that directs blasts of air away from the diaphragm. And then inside is another layer of foam, and probably that foam has completely deteriorated. So you at least want to clean it out, and if you can get replacement, that would be a great Another question, where do you get replacement foam for the inside of an SM58? I would have to Google or go to Schur's website. Yeah, and I'm a little confused. Did they have the metal ball at the top, which is a windscreen? Did they have a foam windscreen on top of that? They must have been looking for a very bad set of conditions. I thought maybe a 57, which has the kind of little, uh, not the ball head, but the rounded head. Maybe somebody put a windscreen on that. But hmm, I'm confused. But hopefully you're not double or triple wind filtering this thing uh, from its normal. I'd pull it off and see if the 58 works the way the 58 was designed. At, at last count, Bill, there's probably about 20,000 companies that sold foam windscreens that would slide over the, the steel ball thing. And sometimes people do it. I, I've seen people do it just so that they can identify which mic is which on a stage oh, with a bunch of ones, singers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it looks ridiculous. Ridiculous, but I have seen that too. I've seen collars and oh, that's blue, that's yellow. So Nerf, it's on the orange mic. <laughs> Nerf ones work great. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, uh, let's go on. Uh, uh, hopefully, it'll work. They're pretty indestructible. So, with luck, you good deal. Next question Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri. Does anyone know of a good interface, preferably with sliders, that can copy the Windows volume mixer in a physical box for on the fly volume mixing? No one has raised their hand on this, so I don't know of anybody who, I, I don't work in Windows, so I do not know of something that would uh, manage to, are you looking for automated sliders or just fly volume, for on-the-fly volume mixing? Um, hmm, I don't know, I don't have anything, a USB mixer or something like that that you could attach to Windows. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Sorry about that, Ron. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, and here on the panel. For the other voiceover folks, do you prefer doing punch and roll recording or recording straight through and edit later? Uh, it's going to be to taste. Chris Fenwick is going to start us and then Javier and then Mitchell. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely to taste. Uh, Jeff, I think uh, every once in a while, I have a few clients that ask me to do voiceovers for some of the videos that I create for them. And I got to say, it's really fun cutting my own voice. Um, but uh, I just, I just read and I back up and I read and then I just cut it all later. I think, I think one of the things, and this works with, any voiceover talent, you got to remember you're dealing with it. We tend to work with the uh, machines. We push buttons. I press stop. It stops. I press play. It plays. I press record. It records. And we are very accustomed to working with equipment. But when we're working with talent, we're working with human beings and they wear out sooner than the equipment that we're working with. They, they have, per, they'll have performance issues. They'll get tired. They'll get frustrated. And dealing with talent in that way is the, um, it's the holy grail of professionalism. Like to, to understand when you can push somebody for another take and when you can't. And when asking them to start over, there's a lot of times when I'll let somebody go and, uh, and I'm listening going, oh, that was, that was bad. That was bad. That was horrible. Not going to use that. But I let them go. Because they'll get a little better, they'll get a little bit better, and then they'll hit a stride. And maybe I'll let them do a whole take through and go, you know what? I think you, one of my favorite phrases, I think you have a better one in you. Let's do one more. Or let's do, actually, I never say one more because then when you do two more, they go, hey, you said we were going to do one more. Let's do another one. I think you have a better one in you. Let's do another one. So uh, you got to remember, you got to remember you're dealing with humans. <laughs> Absolutely. Javier. 
I'm not a voiceover actor, but I direct a lot of voiceovers. Uh, so what I tend to do is I send them the script beforehand so they can check it and get to know it. Uh, so the first take or the first couple of takes I do, let, I let them do whatever they want. But if they haven't read the script, they read it for the first time, they have some ideas, they can do it all the way around. And that's more natural. And I'll start like making some notes and talk about them for the second or third pass. And then if you have to get some, some uh, just punching some stuff like, uh, like tags or like specific intonations that the client wants. Uh, but I work from a, a complete take that's a base uh, take. Mitch Hill? Yeah, doing voiceovers, I uh, generally just mark each uh, take that I do and then come back. And if I have my finger on the M button, depending on what uh, DAW I'm using, um, it's very easy to see the points that need to be picked up. And it depends. It depends on uh, whether you want to change the paragraph or you want to do the whole page. Um, it just de it, it depends what kind of mood I'm in sometimes, too. I'll say, that's just not good enough. And I'd hear Chris's voice in the back of my head saying, you got a better one in you. So I would do it that way. The only time I would do a punch and go thing like that is if I'm asked to uh, read with time. So something, let's say I'm uh, fixing somebody else's voiceover with mine uh, or I'm doing a uh, voiceover to a pre-edited piece, then you got to punch in because the timing is the issue. Chris Fenway. So Mitch, I got to ask, uh, I saw your, your hand gesture, which nobody else in the show uh, saw when I mentioned you have a better one in you. Would you find that annoying as a voice actor if somebody said hey not bad i think you have a better one in you let's let's do another uh yeah i would uh, but i'd keep it to myself well, what would be on, oh, go so ahead, what would be a better way to ask you to do another one just say let's do another, do another one. take come on give us another take and what about the phrase bothers you um it it assumes that uh you you didn't know enough to give you the best take the first time around so that's possible. I will tell you, most of the time I'm dealing with people that aren't pros. Then you're okay. All right. The pros will get cranky. The My uh, strategy for that, and I've done a lot of that, is that was fabulous. Oh, boy, this is going to be so easy. Thank you. Now, we're going to do it one more time because I need you to You said it was good. Quicker. Why are we doing another? No, no, no. Listen to what I'm saying. I need you to do one more because I've already praised them and I, I want to get adrenaline in them and I want them to feel good and, and like they're going to nail this. But then I need a little more time in the first paragraph. Can, so can, you, can you slow that down just a tiny bit, but then continue on through the rest? I'm going to find some small thing to get them back into that, hopefully with them feeling good about themselves. But that idea of making them feel confident and good is almost more important with an amateur than how they're doing the job. Uh, I have a couple more things to say, but Mitchell Hill, go ahead and sneak in. Yeah, I'll make this quick. Uh, generally, what I would do, Chris, is that I, I would blame it on a technical glitch. I would just say we had a glitch for that. Could you do that again? It's, it's the easiest non-offensive uh, way to do it. Um, and uh, if they're a professional, a lot of times you just make eye contact with them and you know they know, oh, yeah, I can do that better. Or they... Uh, They'll do another one uh, in line with that. And it's always the last take is the best one. I, I, I think fundamentally I avoid trying to uh, lie to people. Uh, if it's not good, I, I mean, I'm not going to say that's not good. I'm just going to say, hey, let's do another one. And and the other thing, and, and this came from uh, Quincy Jones when they, did, when they recorded We Are the World. There's a very famous line when he was dealing with all the, uh, you know, a room full of professionals. He said, this is going to be like chopping wood. It's going to take a, it's going to be a long night, but we're going to just keep chopping at the wood. So I, I think that 
it obviously it's different if you're dealing with a pro and somebody who's uh, less experienced. So my take on this is it for me, it depends on, am I doing spot work or am I doing narration? And am I directed or am I not directed in real time? Those four elements change every performance. Uh, I famously have dropped all audio things, except I do all my audio work in Final Cut now because of two functions that it has that are very useful for me. Uh, one is the voiceover tool that allows you to uh, do punch-ins incredibly easy. And the other one is the fact that you can, uh, in narration work, when you're doing something long, uh, when you're doing long takes, the ability to stop for a second and say, I'm going to just do that second paragraph because it's super easy to just chop it and, and fix. Um, it also has an auditions thing that you can do if you want to get into that. But there are enough tools that for me, am I trying to get into the flow of the script so I can perform or am I trying to pay attention to what the people on the other side of the glass are saying to me because I need to keep twisting in small amounts what I'm doing? I do it both ways all the time. There's hardly a week goes by that I don't do narration style where I just want to get the longest takes I can to knock out pieces of the script so I can go back then and focus on little anomalies. But in spot work, I'm working on the first paragraph and I'm probably going to do it six times and pick the best of those six first paragraphs to end up in the final spot. So I, I do all of them. Uh, all right. We've got one, two, three, four. We have four more questions. That was such a long discussion. I thought it was interesting because a lot of people here are interested in voiceover, so I let it run long. Uh, let's knock these four out and then finish up the day. Next question. Lois Richter from Davis, California. What is a condenser mic? What are the other kinds? Jeff, help us out with that. Then we'll just move on. Condenser mic. Uh, there are three basic kinds of, of microphones, condenser, dynamic moving coil, and a dynamic ribbon. We typically call the dynamic ribbon a ribbon. We typically call the dynamic moving coil a dynamic. Those two are very similar in that they use uh, electromagnetic. So when the diaphragm moves, it moves some kind of metal in a magnetic field that induces electricity. Remember that a microphone is turning sound waves pressure in the air into electricity in a wire. A condenser microphone actually uses two plates of metal. And one of those is the diaphragm that moves around when we talk into it. The other one's fixed. And so it changes the distance between the two. Those two plates are charged. So imagine they're almost like a little battery. And by changing the distance, we're changing the voltage across that. So we get a varying uh, electrical voltage. And that is the audio. Uh, we get a quick thought each from Javier and Mitchell, and then we'll move on. Oh, complementing what Jeff just said, uh, dynamic mics tend to be uh, omnidirectional. You, you only capture sound from one place. Uh, condenser mics tend to be either directional, bidirectional, that get sound from both sides, or omnidirectional. They can switch because of how they're made. And ribbon mics are bidirectional. They take sound from both sides, from both ends. So if you speak into a ribbon mic, you also get the, the back part. And another kind of microphone uh, that is used is the contact microphone or PSO mic. Uh, that doesn't sense the vibrations on the air. It sends the vibrations directly on the surface. So it's very useful for acoustic instruments like guitars and uh, like basses and everything like for orchestra, let's say. Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, they didn't leave much for me. So I'll just say that the condenser, uh, lowest between comparing a dynamic and a condenser, a condenser is picking up much more detail and sometimes noise to go along with it. So... I like condenser because I can control my voice for the most part. Dynamic, everyday use, no problem. Condensers are very sensitive. 
not only in terms of the sound, but also in their handling, too. Uh, next question. Eduardo Augustin from Panama. I recently built my fly kit, and I'm looking for an audio interface slant mixer. What are the suggestions? I'm currently using Scarlet 2i2. Jeff Cohen. I'll just briefly mention, too, that I use uh, Evo 8 from Audient. It's really good, and particularly, it's small, uh, it's bus-powered, uh, USB-C or USB-A. And one of the things I love about it, it's fully USB compliant. So meaning not only is it driverless, uh, but it also, uh, the device, including an iOS device, uh, Android, anything else, is actually controlling the actual gain and headset volume by the on-device controls. Uh, the other one that I like is the PreSonos Revelator IO24, <clears throat> also fairly inexpensive, um, USB compliant, same thing, driverless, but you can't control it through the device. But it has a fat channel on board, DSP. I think it's 150 bucks right now. So it's got a bunch of effects on board that you can set up and load into the device itself. Next question. Douglas Carmichael. Waves SoundGrid platforms, the eMotion LV1 or SoundGrid Studio, allow the user to dial in a latency value in milliseconds for external in inserts on a channel. How can you determine said value? I've heard Smart can do it, but are there other tools? Jeff Francis, real quick, and then Mitchell. So Smart or other tools like that, uh, SpectraFoo will do that for measurement. And basically, you're feeding it uh, the original signal and the delayed signal with the latency, and it will calculate that. But you can do that by simply setting up a channel that does not go through the insert and a channel that goes through the insert with the same source and a, a metronome works great because it's a very short, uh, definite transient. And then just go, you know, capture that in your DAW and go in and zoom in and measure the delay there. And Mitch, got a quick thought? In a pinch, use your ears. There you go. Next question. Last question for today. Urshad Trivedi, Daytona Beach, and here on the panel, I hear a lot of people select the KZS10 for an IEM solution. What are others that the panel likes? Perhaps the IE300s or other participants in the ear audio solution? Mitchell? Sure S15s or 215s, excuse me. Okay, I use the N ears. It depends on whether you're just doing speech or whether you want musical resolution. There are different kinds of things. And uh, some of the little security headphones like the N ear that I use uh, are very good for speech, but they're not particularly good for music. Uh, there are other solutions. Jeff Francis, do you have a quick thought before we finish up here? If you're looking for inexpensive, so sort of $15, almost disposable, the Panasonic ErgoFit are a pretty decent sounding cheap earbud that has some good isolation. All right. Thank you, everybody. I thought we were going to be short today by a tremendous amount. It turns out we ran over. So thanks, everybody. And that voiceover thing that got a little heavier than I expected it to. Uh, tomorrow, I'm hosting the talking camera. A look at why choosing different camera shots and camera moves might make sense. Uh, Friday is another day of ruthless reviews, this time behind the scenes. So if you want to know what we all do behind the scenes to show our cameras, we're going to have that tomorrow. Uh, on Saturday, on Friday, on Saturday, uh, immersive media and the education group, as always, Sunday, the introspection day, uh, some community events coming. Don't forget stream deck lab uh, is at 
Uh, 1.30 p.m., um, David Paskin takes us on an exploration of the Stream Deck devices. There's a reader workshop also uh, today, 3 p.m. Pacific time. Conversations with Tony Mobley tonight, 4 p.m. is a kind of behind the scenes look and then five o'clock the show thursday is adora with ella's coming back birding with lois also happens on thursday on friday it's friday tech tackle so tom ferguson you can join him on that and that is all except for thank you to all of the panelists who are here today i could not have managed to get through this without all of these fabulous experts on the panel uh we also want to thank the producers those of you who wrote and submitted questions and the staff in the back end who are going to be on the credits you're about to watch and who with Without whom we could not make any of this happen. Please pay attention to who's there. And thank you all for watching. We'll see you all tomorrow. Get the whisper now. Yeah, that was a lot of credits. <laughs> I kept thinking, I got a big list of credits. I can always stretch because we'll be really short today. And then we ran over. It's not exactly my idea of a short show. That was not what I expected when I looked up 10 minutes into the show and I saw we had four questions. Lots of good interest, lots of good answers too. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>